On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with our friend Cody Float about misogyny, impassibility, and its relationship to Hosea 1 to 3. So we cover topics like just what is misogyny? What is impassibility? What are the modern problems with these? And how does Hosea's teaching potentially impact this? Does it mean that God is misogynistic or that he's passable? How should we think rightly about interpreting these texts? And much, much more. As as always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And, well, I think technically we're both co-hosts, but I'll let, I'll let Brandon use the subordinate know, title. Good grief. <laughs> uh, we're a podcast that's devoted to thinking, and we want to think with particular intellectual virtues such as charity, curiosity, critical thinking, cheerful confessionalism. We think these are sorely needed in our own time and day and particularly in our own churches, so we hope to model this and to promote those virtues. That said, today our topic and our guest is going to be Cody Float, and we're going to be talking about misogyny, impassibility, and various different things related to Hosea 1 to 3. When we started the podcast, I don't know, I guess from the date that we're recording, a year and a half ago or so, I think our original intention was we wanted to have a mixture of guests. We want to have some really well-known experts. We want to have some experts who literally no one knows. And then we still wanted to have a couple of people who aren't you know, on anyone's radar and are, are, are ascending in some way. They're going to potentially eventually be scholars of some sort, but right now they're still uh, going through school or whatever. We wanted to introduce people to a various range of thinkers. And Cody is, I think, in that third stage where he's not an academic scholar yet, but he's working towards that goal. And I know anyone who's listened to the podcast, you've, you've probably heard him before since he's joined our Hanover house. He's one of our editors at the London Lyceum as well. But I'm excited to introduce you guys to some of his own research. So he's recently done a paper on, I guess, a couple of papers on this at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. And I'll let him talk about these as we get going. But just to give you the topic, the one that he sent me over, Yahweh the Misogynist. A Philosophical Critique of Feminist Interpretation of Hosea 1-3. to And I love the way it starts. The first question is, does the Yahweh of the Old Testament hate women? And, you know, if you've read any amount of feminist literature, particularly as it relates to theology, I think you start seeing questions along these lines of, does God hate women or can a male savior save women? So I think these questions are very relevant, very important for our own current context, especially, I mean, if there are, I mean, if you read Hosea, I think there's probably serious questions that if you, if you want to take a step back and just look at it from our context to that context, there does seem to be some serious questions about does God hate women? So I think this is going to be a fun topic, but Cody, before we jump into it, give us just a little bit of background for those of our listeners who don't know you. And then why jump into the deep end on these types of topics? I mean, you're, you're a biblical <laughs> scholar guy. Is it just Hosea that just has to bring these out? I mean, you could just do a normal exegesis paper. Why engage feminism at this point? 
Yeah. So uh, like you said, my name is Cody Float. I currently live in Montgomery, Alabama, um, where I manage a coffee shop. That's my day to day. Um, but like you said, I am desiring to um, be a biblical scholar. So I'm a THM student at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary um, in Old Testament in particular. Um, and that's what prompted um, the papers that we are going to be talking about today is that they are they were written for class. Um, but what sparked my desire to um, address issues like feminism, um, particularly within the realm of Hosea, is because of the modern milieu that we're currently living in, and that these are very live questions that um, not just feminists, but even like well-meaning evangelical people are having. They're, they they read texts like what we're going to talk about in Hosea 1 to 3, and there can be some very shocking language being used. And so they read this and they can think to themselves, wow, like why choose why choose that word? Why use that imagery? Does this imagery say anything about what the biblical authors thought about women or more preeminently about what who, who God himself says about women? And so in light of all the modern conversations that evangelicals are having in particular about uh, gender and women in particular, I wanted to kind of tackle that issue through my own particular research interest, which is um, the Book of the Twelve, which Jose is the first book. That's helpful context. So I th- just to give our listeners a little bit of a heads up, you know, we do these recordings live. So Brandon just had to go for own personal reasons. So it's just me riding solo here with Cody now, which should be fun. I don't have somebody to keep <laughs> me in line or keep me in check. I can ask whatever I want. That said, maybe we, just to quote our very Reverend Brandon, (laughs) start with a basic definition of what misogyny is, what passability or impassibility is, so that we can have the necessary contextual tools to engage the critiques and the questions that that are going on with Hosea. So regarding misogyny, um, you could look up things even like Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, and you'll find definitions akin to saying that misogyny is simply the denigration of women the, or the idea that women are inferior ontologically to men um, or I guess to anything else, really. But that's kind of the thrust of misogyny. So is are women inferior? Are they being denigrated or maligned in any particular way? In the in reference, at least to my research um, within the book of Hosea, um, and then impassibility is, which is another paper I'm writing within Hosea, is the idea that to use confessional language, God is without passions. Okay. So um, the idea that God cannot be acted upon by creation. Now, different people express this different ways. Some people go as far as to say that God being without passions means that God doesn't have emotions, period. Um, Other people who still fall within classical impassibility would say, no, God does have emotions, um, but rather those are perfections within God. God. They're not emotions in the same way that we think about human emotions. 
Um, and so that would be impassibility. So God cannot be manipulated or forced to react, uh, react contrary to his nature um, in any particular way. So with those in mind, what are the problems that arise in the first couple of chapters of Hosea for these things? Why is it that misogyny is something that comes up? And why is it that people want to attribute passability to God in these first few chapters? Yeah. So for those who um, are unaware, Hosea 1 to 3 is the introduction to the book. And it is what sets the tone for the rest, for the entirety of the book and for, I would argue, the book of the 12 in general. So Hosea 1 to 3 covers the relationship between the prophet Hosea and his adulterous wife, Gomer. So right out of the gate, we see Yahweh commanding Hosea to go take for himself a wife of harlotry, a wife of whoredom, a promiscuous wife. There's all sorts of words that you could use um, that fall within what God is seeking to communicate. But he's commanded to go take for himself an adulterous wife. And so the text says that he takes this woman named Gomer to be his wife. They end up having children. And all throughout these first three chapters, we have this um, relationship of Gomer, who consistently is running away from Hosea, running after other lovers, seeking to find her happiness, her satisfaction in these other lovers, um, and Yahweh rebuking her and calling her back throughout the text. So regarding misogyny, first, firstly, um, the reason why that claim gets brought up within these first three chapters is because of the language that is used. Okay, So among feminist interpretation of Hosea 1 to 3, uh, some would look at uh, even the very first couple of verses of the text and this idea of Gomer being a wife or a woman of whoredom of adultery, of promiscuity, uh, they would interject and say, look, that's merely the man's point of view. Right? We have no historical evidence for saying that Gomer was actually a prostitute or that she hoard herself out, whether for money or for not. We have no historical evidence of that. So there's no reason to believe that's true of her. And so all we have in the text is a man, right, who at least among feminists, should immediately almost be disregarded, right? His opinion is not as, not as important. It's biased. Um, it's, in this context, patriarchal and oppressive. So we don't want to give as much weight to that. And we want to realize that what's being described of Gomer may not even be historically accurate, okay? But moving into chapter two, we have this rebuke from Yahweh that is using, right, to be honest, very provocative language. So we have language like God saying he's going to strip Gomer naked and expose her to the world. We have language saying that he's going to deprive her of water. He's going to drive her to thirst in the wilderness. Um, he's going to bar her way with thorns and thistles to keep her from her lovers. And all of this is, I mean, to anybody, like just honestly shocking language. It can be provocative language. And so we have to wrestle with it. And feminists have chosen to wrestle with it. Um, quite cynically. So they would say that this is God or Yahweh clearly acting in a misogynistic way that he is, and for the most, for the more cynical, he is enacting sexual violence upon Gomer. 
that he is stripping her naked, right? He's abusing her, um, that he's uncovering her against her permissions. Um, and so, yeah, so feminists would, some feminists, not all, but they would look at this text, particularly in Hosea 2, and say that Yahweh is a sexual abuser. Um, and thus it could be a justification in the eyes of quote unquote patriarchal men to act in similar ways. So that's how the misogyny conversation comes up in Hosea. Now regarding impassibility, that comes from primarily the very beginning of the book where Hosea is clearly being used as a figure for God, right? So Hosea as the husband in this relationship is figuring or he's uh, representing Yahweh because the marriage, I argue in my paper, is um, essentially a figural one. So this marriage is an institution that God is using to teach us about himself and his divine plan in redemption particularly. And in this case, Yahweh is using a literal marriage. He's literally organized and designed Hosea and Gomer's lives here on this earth in order to teach his people about his covenantal pursuit of his adulterous bride. And so if we're going to move forward with the idea that Hosea is figuring God, then you have to ask the question, right? We have Hosea, who's a very passioned person. He's a creature. He's human, right? So he has passions. He has uncontrolled emotions, right? So if Hosea is figuring God, does that then mean that we are to read all of kind of who Hosea is up into the very nature of God himself. So by figuring God, is God also being portrayed in the text as passable like Hosea is, that he is he can be manipulated by Israel, um, that he can be kind of forced into decisions, um, or that his um, emotional life is uh, frantic. So those are kind of how those questions pop up from within the text. Yeah, the, I mean, they seem like good questions. They seem like reasonable questions. It seems to me that any reader of the text, at least in our current context, especially, you know, given all the the abuse that seems to be uncovered on a daily basis uh, in our churches, that these would be pressing serious questions. So what has been o- the overall typical reply in the literature to these questions? You mentioned a lot of the feminists come at it critically. Does it seem that either A, the opposite response is hand-waving, or is there a legitimate wrestling with it that comes with a answer that's more, I don't know, robust and caring? I, I'm particularly thinking probably of the misogyny here with that question rather than the impassibility. Yeah, um, it's a kind of a hard question to answer because, um, and this is one reason why I like my research interest is in the minor prophets is because there's frankly just not a lot of work being done on the book of the 12th and particularly not a lot of work being done on Hosea. Um, And so it is hard to answer that question because within more theologically conservative circles, um, there really is not a lot of engagement, um, particularly with this question. Most of the time, so you mentioned hand-waving. I I wouldn't say that I see a lot of hand-waving in, you know, but there is a lot of, I mean, just outright ignoring the question. 
right? Um, they don't even, it's not even on the mind. And so you read a lot of right. modern conservative commentaries, you're just not even really going to get a discussion of the language, right? You'll immediately, so when you read Hosea 2 in modern commentaries, you'll get immediately a jump to, well, this is, you know, figurative language, which it is. Um, but they, they kind of just use that and ignore any questions that could be posed off of that language. Now, I would say there are some more recent, like, and by recent, I mean like two months ago, <laughs> commentaries that have released on Hosea, uh, Zondervan, so the Zondervan um, exegetical commentary on the Old Testament, that series. Uh, let me see. Jerry Huang um, just released the volume on Hosea and then he actually really helpfully has a full section addressing that particular issue of these claims that feminist scholars have made regarding Hosea 1 to 3. And he addresses that by affirming that, yeah, these are real questions that we ought to wrestle with deeply. Um, there's language in here that is shocking, but that when understood within the context of the book and within the biblical canon as a whole, um, it's not a question that dismantles our theology. And so, but he's really been one of the only people I've seen who do come from a more theologically conservative uh, framework who actually uh, like address the question head on. Most people just ignore it. Yeah, that's the, it's interesting that particular questions just aren't even addressed in the literature. I mean, I know you don't have the answer for this, but I, I often wonder like, why is that? Is it truly that we're just that dumb, deaf and blind uh, to some degree to some of this stuff? Or is it just, you know, the cultural factors that impact it? Or if you want to be really cynical, it's because you're, you're privileged. You just, you don't see it. But, and I'm sure there, there's some mixture of the truth to all of those to some degree. But what then is a contextually nuanced answer to this problem look like? How do you engage such shocking language and say, yes, I still affirm that God is not a misogynist? So the tack that I take in my paper is addressing it uh, more um, philosophically or epistemologically. Um, the paper that in particular is not necessarily a theological response. Um, so I'm addressing ultimately how a feminist or a more generally postmodern approach to textual meaning in general isn't able to answer their questions that they're raising. So they ask these questions because they rightly long for justice right they see a history of ways in which women have been abused or oppressed um, and they they want to correct that but i argue in my paper that they're fun they're fundamentally their definitions of textual meaning are unable to actually give them what they long for right because when you so broaden when you make textual meaning ultimately a reader response theory of you know, textual meaning is contingent upon your social location. So every different social location has a different understanding of the text and all of these various social locations are to be equally affirmed, valued, held up, um, except for those who are patriarchal, of course, those don't get to be held up or affirmed. <laughs> but, um, but aside from those, everything's to be affirmed. Um, I argue in my paper that when you have that understanding of meaning, like somebody has to come out on top. Right, especially when you're especially when you're wanting something concrete to like justice in the world, 
right? So somebody's definition is going to have to come out on top. So I argue when you have, when you epistemologically allow for multiplicity of meaning, you're just cutting your own legs out from under you at that point. Um, so that's the critique I go at in the book. Uh, I mean, not the book, the paper in particular, um, but more theologically, I would argue that when you come to the text with an under a theological understanding of who's authoring the text, right? So not merely the human writer, but ultimately God, right? That immediately kind of puts fences around where you can go. Um, and we know throughout the rest of the biblical canon, right? God has made men and women um, good, right? That they are equally, right? In the image of God, we see that from the very beginning of the Old Testament. And we see that reaffirmed all throughout scripture. So we want to come at Hosea with uh, those kinds of realities in mind that um, Gomer is an image bearer, right? She's not being denigrated or maligned in her essence, right? Um, she's her womanhood, her femininity is not in question, right? Um, so then what is the question of the text? Why, why is she being described the way that she is? And so you have to answer that theologically through this um, figural reality that's evident in the first three chapters. So what is her purpose there? Right. Um, she's not being denigrated because she's a woman. She's not being described in those ways because she is a woman. Um, she's being described in those ways because she is figurally representing Israel, who has hoard herself so to speak, to the idols and gods of the land around Israel and within Israel, right? And the Baals in particular, at least in the context of Hosea. And so when you put it in that more theological context, that this is what Hosea is trying to communicate, um, it helps you um, it's from like, you know, diving down rabbit trails that aren't even really the intention of the text to begin with. Um, and um, it keeps you kind of fenced in from going to more uh, cynical and dangerous places. Um, yeah, so at the end of the day, answering the misogyny question in Hosea really is a matter of uh, what is textual meaning and what is Gomer's purpose in the book? Um, what is So a natural question that's coming to me at this point is, you know, you started when you're defending God in the sense is you can bring certain presuppositions that can kind of box in your appropriate responses. Is it safe to come to the text with those presuppositions? I know there's been a lot more writing on this saying presuppositions are okay recently, but still walk me through that. Why is it okay? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I would argue that they are, they're there regardless whether you affirm them or not. And that's kind of the reality is when you, when you read uh, postmodern interpreters, modernist interpreters, what have you, there's always presuppositions in play, whether that be their presupposition of who they believe God is ultimately, and that kind of will curtail how they interpret the text, what they believe the scriptures are ontologically, right? So there's all sorts of these, you know, foundational prolegomena kind of questions that everybody approaches the text with to one degree or another. And so we have to realize that and in light of realizing that, not turn and say, well, in light of that, we should just jettison presuppositions and just deal with the text in front of us as a kind of a 
tabula rasa, you know, a blank slate. Um, that's that was the modernist um, idea, right? Of you know, we are the uh, unbiased, uh, kind of transcendent, autonomous thinker who can look at a text without any presuppositions and scientifically derive what it means, right? That's not the way that we're to approach the Bible because of the nature of what the Bible is, right? So like that is important to bring to the text. I'm approaching Hosea knowing that this is a text that is divine revelation, right? It's been breathed out by God. And thus this text must um, mean some, like the meaning of it and ultimately what it's revealing about God must be consistent about with who God is. So I'm, I'm, I, I have to approach the text that way. Um, and in fact, at least within modern history, uh, theologically, when you begin approaching the text without that framework in mind, when you address, come at the text thinking, well, I'm going to come at it without any prior conceptions of who God is, that's often where you end up getting very erroneous interpretations of who God is. I would argue that's a lot of the kind of origins of things like social Trinitarianism. Right of approaching the text without kind of those classical frameworks in your mind, constraining your um, interpretation to a degree. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, only in the modernist age would somebody be able to say that approaching the text with presuppositions is a bad thing. Um, and I think that's something to be jettisoned because We've only seen, by and large, uh, a horrible outcome when you, when you decide to go that route. Yeah, so I, I don't want to lose track of the other question that we've been I've been wanting to ask you about is impassibility. Yeah. So we I think we've engaged a lot in this misogynist question. What is the reply as far as passability and passability goes? Because I do think the typical line for someone who wants to affirm passability is, look, it's right there in the biblical text. The The impassibilist has to do all sorts of exegetical <clears throat> gymnastics to get around the reality that God is described in this way. Why should we say that's not actually how God is? It's something completely different. Yeah. So impassibility is a very interesting attribute when you think of what's, you know, Associated with classical theism, it's one of the more interesting attributes because it's not um, the language of God being without passions is not explicitly in the text, right? Unlike something like immutability, right? God does not change. Scripture literally says that. Uh, it also <laughs> says the contrary, too. So that's where you have to begin, you know, um, having tough conversations. But the way that most theologians talk about impassibility is that it is a, uh, it's it is there in the text, not explicitly, but as a kind of implicit consequence of the other attributes of God that are explicitly stated in the text. Um, so an attribute like immutability, right? So the very reality that God cannot change, um, that He's not mutable, implies that God cannot be changed or affected in that sense by what he has made. Right? So connecting that to passions, um, God cannot 
be manipulated to responding into a particular situation, right? That God's kind of emotional levels, so to speak, aren't going to like be ebbing and flowing, going up and down to where now he just feels particularly sympathetic. And so he's going to respond to Israel. Maybe he wouldn't have done that before, but now that Israel has moved him, right? He's going to respond. And we see things like that in the biblical text, which is why the questions are raised is Israel repents. And so Yahweh quote unquote repents in the text. He, you know, the, some people will say that God, we see Yahweh changing his mind. And we see this even in the, at the end of Hosea. So in the Hosea 11, right, God, um, Yahweh says that, you know, kind of in light of Israel's at least momentary repentance, he's not going to um, pour out the fullness of his wrath. He's not going to vent his wrath upon Israel, right? So if you look at um, particularly biblical scholars who are trying to wrestle with issues of impassibility, they often go to texts like Hosea 11 and they say, oh, look, that's a, that's a clear example of passibility, right? That God's emotions are being moved to do something else. I guess, I don't know, I, I'm trying to, to wrestle with how best to answer this question, because I, I know we've got some listeners who are going to be like, impassibility is insane. Um, and I don't know if they're going to be convinced by just the simple argument of, well, you've got to take everything sure. together. Is there... Uh, are there other theological reasons when you come to Hosea to say these are definitely intended to be figurative of something else yeah. and not literal? Yeah. So the way that I approach the question in my paper is through kind of what I mentioned before, um, biblical figuration. Right. So if Hosea is figuring Yahweh, right, that means that his life, his actions are teaching us something about God in his character. Right. And so, um, but what I argue in my paper is that that figuration is still because there's a creator creature distinction um, analogical, right? That it's not like a one to one. Everything in Ho- you see in Hosea can be read up into the nature of God. And I give an example in my paper of how we can see that with something else that everything's not literalistically kind of attached from the um, person to what they're figuring. So the example I use is David, right? So King David in scripture is a figure. He's figuring uh, the Messiah, the king, particularly the kingly role of um, our Messiah, Jesus. Now, does that mean that every literal aspect of David's kingly reign is to be read up into the kingly reign of Jesus? Well, obviously not. Right, because we see examples in the biblical text where, I mean, David clearly does not rule well. You know, we think of situations like with Bathsheba; he kind of wields his authority, right, to call this random woman up into his bedroom and to sleep with her. Right, Christ does not do that. Right, Christ does not rule as a king that way. Um, and so, I kind of use that as an example of. Here in in scripture, we have creaturely figures that are meant to teach us something of the divine, but not everything we see in the creatures to be read up into the divine himself. And so that's the tactic I take with impassibility is that, what were you going to say? No, it just seems 
I'm noticing parallel themes. Obviously, you mentioned this figural reading. Yeah. It seems to be doing a lot of work here. Yeah. Uh, is figural reading different than typology, different than allegory, different than these other methods of interpretation? Yeah. It depends on who you talk to. Um, I've been like wrestling with that myself because I do think there is something of a difference between figuration and typology. Uh, I've not quite come to the conclusion on what that difference is, but if you hear, if you listen to kind of proponents of figural reading, so somebody like Don Collette, um, who recently wrote a book on figural reading in the Old Testament, um, I recently heard him on a uh, Greystone podcast, talked with Dr. Mark Garcia about figural reading, and they mentioned typology as being more of the linear aspect. So typology being more linear, there's more escalation and progression. Whereas um, I guess you could say that figuration is more of the ontological. It's not necessarily some linear progression along a line, but it, it is um, embodying, right, ontologically, so to speak, um, what is trying to teach. And so um, that's... Yeah, that's a live question that I'm wrestling with because I do think there is somewhat of a difference. Though, I mean, to some degree, they are two sides of the same coin, right? So it's getting at the idea, and this is how I would define figuration in general, is that figuration is God's providential ordering of history, right, of time and space, um, and his use of persons, places, events, institutions in the biblical storyline. Um, in particular, to uh, testify to his nature and to his work, his divine plan. Um, and so there's this there's this patterned history in the Bible. You can kind of see this that God uses the same patterns right over and over and over again to f- kind of figure to testify to uh, these kind of broader spiritual realities, this plan that God has for the entirety of the cosmos. Um, And that, um, yeah, the reality of the scriptures are our reality. Um, And so, um, but that's a great question because it it is a question. And the whole conversation around figural reading um, is a fairly recent one. Right. It's kind of and I mean, I wouldn't say exploding. There's more conversation about it. It's not an explosive one. But um, but that is a question that I think more and more people are going to attempt to ask within the realm of figural reading. Um, and it's an important one because it's ultimately saying, look, what figural reading is doing is not something necessarily uh, wholly other than typology. And it's not wholly other than biblical theology or you know, how the medievals would have thought about something like allegory. It's actually kind of different ways of expressing the same thing that the church has talked about for 2000 years. So, yeah, no, that's good. That's helpful. So number one, I hope that you keep working on these pieces and get it published because I think probably a lot of our listeners would be interested in engaging these questions at length, particularly how you're utilizing this method of interpretation to solve for some very real problems or for some very real uh, concerns. So I, I think this is really helpful and interesting work. Number two, uh, y- you've quit on Twitter twice now, so I don't know if I want to tell people that you're on Twitter. Um, <laughs> are there other places they can find you to keep up with your work, those types of things? Yeah. So I, uh, uh, yeah, like you said, I'm taking a, 
extended hiatus from Twitter, though my account's still on there, at least for the time being, though a friend told me today that if I don't use it over a particular amount of time, Twitter started just deactivating people, um, which is sad, but um, I'm technically on Twitter. Um, I'm on Facebook, um, but I would say if you want to get in touch with me, um, email is probably the best way to go. Uh, I'm becoming more and more, I guess, old school in that way. Um, I, I increasingly get more annoyed with social media. So, um, <laughs> I, yeah, so my email is just codyfloat at gmail.com. That's a great way to interact with me. And yeah, kind of like you get out, I do plan on, uh, sending these papers out for publication. So yeah, pray that the Lord would open those doors, um, because I do want these things to provoke conversation because I think, um, that this kind of figural way of approaching the biblical text is one that is found within scripture itself. It's not something that I'm just like, you know, 2000 years later, bringing onto the text. And I do think that approaching the scriptures in this way does help us with very live practical issues. Um, and another example of this is, you know, yeah, Dr. Mark Garcia, Greystone, how he's using figural reading to address issues like domestic violence. Um, and so that's one thing I want to do with my work is take um, this hermeneutic, this way of reading scripture and apply it to, um, yeah, just very live situations and um, situations that do, yeah, provoke a lot of right emotions um, and questions in um, both believer and unbeliever alike. So. That's good. So eventually, you know, in like three years, once the peer review process is done, yeah. uh, maybe we'll get to see him. <laughs> that that said, I encourage you email Cody if you've got questions on this. I think he's doing a lot of interesting work here. As as we mentioned, there's just not a lot in the exegesis world that's engaging these types of questions. I think for a period of time, exegesis kind of got siloed off in this really boring, like, when was this dated to questions yeah. which i think are relevant but you kind of get it's lost in those it's hard the like like i said earlier a lot of the only people addressing these questions are um, not theologically conservative people at places like sbl who are just very cynical of the text and so what i'm hoping to do is to address very well-meaning questions and questions that should be asked and answered but in a way that's just what i believe to be faithful to um, God, the scriptures, and how he's kind of ordered reality. So, Yeah, that's good. I, I think we want to say these questions are legitimate, serious questions that yeah. deserve a legitimate, serious answer. Yep. Uh, and not just being ignored or being ridiculed as, wow, you're like off in loony, loony bin land. Yeah. Um, I think these, in this scenario, are, are good questions. But anyway, I've had a lot of fun talking about this. I, I could talk about it a lot more, um, but I think... My son here, he, he, he's ready to be done. I don't know if you guys, you guys are probably listening. Oh, here he is. You guys listening, you like to listen for an hour to, to me talk. That's fine, I'm sure. Um, but he doesn't. So anybody who's been listening, email Cody. I think this has been a really good conversation. I appreciate it. And everybody's been listening. It's, this is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we thank you for tuning in. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. 
book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.